Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. In my Year 10 World Religions class, we've been looking uh, at various world religions. And one of the world religions we've been looking at is Buddhism. And Buddhism is essentially uh, a quest to escape a world of suffering. And Buddhists are guided by what they call Four Noble Truths. And one of those noble truths is that the cause of suffering is desire. We suffer because we desire. Now, I don't want to unpack that this morning, um, but I want to respectfully disagree with the Buddha. Not all suffering is caused by desire. Some suffering is caused by stupidity. Now, I want to show a photo. I don't know if you can see that real well. Uh, this guy's name is Jay Swingler. Jay Swingler from Wolverhampton, England. Now, Jay and his best mate uh, have a YouTube channel and they do stupid things and they upload those stupid things to YouTube for our viewing pleasure. Now, can anyone tell, just by looking at that picture, what stupid thing Jay has in mind? Something with a microwave? Okay, you can see some packets of polyfiller there. Polyfiller uh, is a filler that is used to fill in cracks in walls. You mix it with water and you fix cracks in walls. Let me tell you what Jay's about to do. Jay is about to put a plastic bag over his head. Don't do this at home, kids. Okay. Jay is about to put a plastic bag over his head. He's about to insert a straw into his mouth so that he can breathe through that straw. Jay is then going to put his head into the microwave and fill it with polyfiller and cement his head into the microwave oven. <laughs> now, if you were here, yeah, why? Why? Exactly, why? Um, if you were watching, uh, you know that show 20 to 1? You know, they count down 20 to 1 different things. Well, this was on that show about a month ago, and so I looked it up. And, uh, and Jay did this on the show. Oh, well, he didn't do it on the show. They showed uh, the result of him doing it. And uh, so what Jay did, um, what I read about Jay was Jay confessed that he was uh, extremely claustrophobic. Now, I would suggest that if you suffer from extreme claustrophobia, you don't cement your head into a microwave oven. Uh, but maybe that's just me. But it's not Jay. Jay went ahead, put the plastic bag on, put the straw in, put his head in the microwave oven, they mixed up the polyfiller and poured it into the microwave oven and it began to set. But because of Jay's claustrophobia, he was starting to stress a little because the, the polyfiller was not setting as rapidly as he would have liked to and he wanted to get out of that microwave oven. So his good mate got a hairdryer <laughs> and started drying the polyfiller with the hairdryer. Now, as Jay felt the polyfiller drying around him, he could feel that as it dried, it expands and he could feel his skull compressing as it expanded and he could feel it closing the straw through which he was breathing. And Jay knew he was in a bit of trouble. Uh, so his mate tried frantically for 90 minutes to get him out of the microwave oven. 
After 90 minutes realising that he couldn't get him out of the microwave oven, they finally called for emergency services who came and spent another hour getting him out of the microwave oven. And I think we've got a picture of that too. There's Jay with the micro microwave on his head and the emergency services trying to get him out. Like I said, some suffering is caused by stupidity. <laughs> there was a photo of Jay. I couldn't find it, but I had seen it. Uh, Jay didn't have two black eyes. His whole head was black. He was bruised and he was sore. Some suffering is caused by stupidity. Regardless of why suffering happens, the Bible teaches us that we live in a world in which suffering is inevitable. It's going to happen. Now, this is not the world that God created. God created a perfect world, a world free of pain, a world free of sickness, suffering, death, cats. God created a perfect world. <laughs> Collingwood, uh, God created a perfect world. But sin entered the world and we no longer live in that world. We do live in a world where there is pain, sickness, suffering and death. And the passage that I want to look at this morning answers that age-old question, where is God when I suffer? So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn please to Matthew chapter 6. If not, it'll come up on the screen behind you. Matthew chapter 6 and verses 45 to 51. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now the crowd that Jesus is dismissing uh, is the crowd that had gathered the day that Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fishes. And you might remember Pastor Peter preached on this a uh, number of weeks back. And that number of 500 was a little bit more than, oh, sorry, 5,000 was a little bit more than 5,000 uh, because that was just the men. Uh, most people married in those days and most couples had children. And so, you know, there would have been between 10, 15,000 people here on this day. And this is the crowd that Jesus was dismissing. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the storm died down. They were completely amazed. What an awesome passage of scripture. Uh, again, I'm looking for answers to this question, where is God when I suffer? Now, on this particular day, I've already mentioned that Jesus had just fed that crowd of between 10, maybe 15,000 people. And I'm guessing that that was a fairly taxing day for Jesus, certainly, but for the disciples in particular. 
Um, I can imagine how emotional that day was, how uh, physically demanding it was, how uh, spiritually taxing it was. Uh, it was taxing in all ways. Um, you can imagine when Jesus turned to them, this huge crowd of people, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey guys, how are we going to feed this lot? You can imagine the pressure that would have immediately come on these guys as they sought for an answer of how they were going to feed these guys. And then, oh well, this crowd. And then um, when Jesus performs that miracle, you know, there's the distribution uh, to all of these people, the gathering up, uh, you know, the excitement, the adrenaline rush of seeing what Jesus had done. I hazard a guess that at the end of this day, the disciples were well and truly spent. And I think for that reason... Uh, Jesus said to them, look, you guys go down in the boat, get in the boat, go across the other side of the Sea of Galilee and I'll meet you in Bethsaida. I think he just sent them away for a bit of R&R, a bit of rest. But rather than rest himself, uh, Jesus decided, having dismissed the crowd, whatever that looked like, uh, Jesus decided that he would go up on a mountainside and pray. Now, in the meantime... The disciples find themselves out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a bit of a storm whips up. Well, in fact, it was more than a bit of a storm. It was quite a fierce storm. And, uh, you know, they're battling this headwind and uh, they're struggling to make headway. And the scripture says that uh, they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. This was quite a struggle for these experienced fishermen. And what I want to say this morning is that Jesus was not unaware of the struggle that they were going through. Uh, have a look there in verse 47. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So when evening came... He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Just tuck that thought away in the back of your mind just for a moment. He saw them straining at the oars. When we read on, we see that he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. Now, the Jews had adopted from the Romans this idea of dividing the night into four watches. And each of those watches were three hours in length. Uh, the first watch of the night began at 6pm in the evening and went till 9pm. The second watch was from 9pm till midnight. The third watch was from midnight to 3am in the morning. And the fourth watch from 3am to 6am. And it was the fourth watch that Jesus around about the fourth watch that Jesus went out to them on the lake. Now, get this in mind. Um, if we accept, as the scripture says, that it was early evening when Jesus saw them, uh, we can hazard a guess that that was probably around six in the evening, uh, you know, when it was still light. You know, the beginning of the first watch, about six in the evening. But it wasn't until the beginning, oh, well, the fourth watch, that Jesus went out to them from about 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, that's about a nine-hour passage of time. At least nine hours had passed since Jesus first saw the disciples struggling in the boat and then went out to them. Nine hours. Now, I don't know if the disciples ever realised that, 
But I can imagine how they feel if they did. I imagine that they did because Mark wrote those details into his gospel, so I imagine that they were known. But I can imagine how the disciples must have felt about that. Are you kidding? Nine hours? Where have you been? Now, I don't know if that's how they felt. Uh, It's how I would have felt. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, I find in this story something that goes a little bit of the way towards answering this question, where is God when I go through suffering? And this is what I want to say this morning. I find this to be a principle at work in my life. Um, And I suspect that you find it as a principle in your life as well. And this is it. Sometimes God watches us strain at the oars for a little while before coming to our aid. Sometimes God watches us strain at the oars for a little while before coming to our aid. In other words, sometimes God allows us to go through a period of struggle before coming to our assistance. Now, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we go through a difficult period, we cry out to God and he's there immediately. And I can remember a moment in my life when this was most notable. And it was when Jen and I had gone off to Bible college. And um, we, we got married and had a two-week honeymoon and went straight into Bible college. And during that one year of engagement, our plan was that See, Bible study courses back then weren't government funded. There was no OS study. There was no student allowance uh, for anyone doing a Bible college course. So our plan was that during our one year of engagement, we would throw everything that we had into savings and uh, then we'd pay for the wedding and get through what we thought then was only going to be two years of Bible college. And, uh, And that's what we did. We got married. We went off to Bible college. For the first year of Bible college, Jen uh, worked and, you know, we were able to pay our fees and, uh, and live as well. Uh, but at the end of the first year, Jen threw her job in and we both studied together. Now, we weren't far into the year before the well ran dry. We did not have a brass razu to our name, not a penny. And I well remember the night, and I'm certain that Jen would remember it as well, where we sat on the end of our bed and we cried out to God, God, what's going on here? Are we supposed to be here? Have we made a terrible mistake? And we cried out, God, if this is your will that we be here, we need $20. And that's what we prayed. The words had barely fallen off my lips when there was a knock at the door. And I went and opened the door. And there before us was a lady, a student at the college, a much older lady, and this lady was crackers. She was, she was weird. Um, no, I'm serious. She was weird. Weird. Uh, even by my standards. <laughs> she was weird. Um, and, you know, we didn't have much to do with her. Not many people did have much to do with her. She was nuttier than a picnic bar. And, and she'd knocked on the door. And, um, you know, just very, very abruptly and tersely, she said, God told me to give you this. And then she turned and walked away. <laughs> Yep, opened it up, $20. $20, exactly what we'd prayed for. Two things ran through my mind. Firstly, God, you're awesome. You are awesome. This is so much the encouragement we needed. This is so much the confirmation we needed. Thank you, God, for doing this. 
The other thing that went through my mind was I should have asked for 50, but anyway. <laughs> 20 will do. <laughs> but God is awesome. Um, but what I want to say is this. That does not happen to me every day of my life. It doesn't even happen often. That happens rarely. You know, I go through a period of struggle. I cry out to God and he's there immediately. That is the rarity. That's, not, that's the exception rather than the rule. The rule for me seems to, I don't know if this is right for you, but the rule for me seems to be, I'll go through a period of suffering and God will watch and wait. That is my experience. Jesus watched the disciples struggling at the oars, straining at the oars for nine hours before going to their, their aid, their assistance. And I find that the same is true in my life. More often than not, more often than I would like, more often than I would even appreciate, God just watches and waits. I wonder, I wonder why that is. Why doesn't he just arrive every time we need him, when we need him? I mean, that'd be easy for him, he can do that. Why not, whenever I cry out, God, I need you, why isn't he there immediately? And why not every time? Why does he watch and wait? Well, two things. Firstly, I don't know. <laughs> Haven't got a clue. I really don't know. Who can understand the mind of God? Um, I've read a lot of stuff on suffering. And I love the writings of Philip Yancey. Those of you who have read Philip Yancey, I'm sure would love him too. Uh, you know, where is God when it hurts? Disappointment with God. I love his works. And I've read a lot of stuff on suffering. But at the end of the day, I really don't know why God does what he does. I really don't know why he makes us go through difficult times. And I really don't know why he doesn't answer us immediately. But let me offer just one thought. It's all I'm good for, one thought. <laughs> one thought per day, perhaps. Uh, let me offer one thought. Um, Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, uh, would tell the story of uh, the fishing trawlers that would go out late into the night and would go out trawling for fish. And he talked of this one particular company that was particularly concerned for the quality of the product that they sold to the public. And they were always looking for ways to make their fish taste better. And so someone came up with the idea, well, you know, maybe if we brought the fish back fresh, maybe if we put them in water and brought them back fresh, that would help. And it did. They were impressed at the way in which the quality of the fish improved. Someone came up with the next idea of, uh, you know, putting in bigger tanks, giving the fish a little bit more freedom to swim. And, uh, you know, that would then improve the taste of the fish. And it did. It improved the taste of the fish quite dramatically, uh, according to all reports. But there was one occasion when uh, Spurgeon tells that um, uh, inadvertently a shark had gotten in with the catch. And Spurgeon says that uh, when the ship came back to port, there weren't many fish left, <laughs> but the ones that were left were delicious. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if God sometimes allows us to swim with sharks 
because he's interested in the quality of fish that we become. I wonder. Now, I think there's some biblical support for that. I haven't got this there, Jerry, but um, it's just come to mind now. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's biblical support for this. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, I think, he says, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. You know, maybe God's interested in the quality of fish that we become through our trials. Now, these, these men down there on the Sea of Galilee in that boat, in the near distant future, these guys were going to go into the known world and they were going to turn it upside down. They were going to stand before hostile Jewish crowds, hostile crowds full stop. They were going to stand before emperors, uh, jailers, and they were going to have to endure a lot. And I wonder if this moment that they went through here out on the Sea of Galilee and other moments like it were not in some way meant to shape them and form them into the people that God needed them to be to reach a lost world. I wonder. Why doesn't God come immediately? Two things. Firstly, I don't know, but maybe it has something to do with our development and our growth. Secondly, why doesn't he come immediately? Well, secondly, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It really doesn't matter whether he does or doesn't. Because the final thing I want to say today is this. Whenever we're straining at the oars, thanks, Jerry. Whenever we're straining at the oars, whenever we're struggling, whenever we're going through a difficult time, we are always, always in his vision and under his care. Whenever we're straining at the oars, we are always in his vision and under his care. It doesn't matter when he comes. We're cared for and loved all the way through the trial. Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And from his vantage points, from his vantage point, he could see the disciples struggling. And I imagine that as darkness came and as the moon shone off the Sea of Galilee, his eyes were still on the struggle of the disciples. And it would not surprise me at all to find that for that nine-hour passage of time, or however long that passage of time was, that they were the subjects of his prayer. That for nine hours he was praying for them. He was up on the mountain, he was watching the disciples, and right the way through their struggle, right the way through their journey, he was pouring out his heart in prayer for them. Father God, I need these guys, we need these guys. They're going to take our name to the people. They're going to stand before hostile crowds. Father God, use this moment to build courage in them. Use this moment to develop strength. Use this moment to enable them to persevere through trial. We need these people. We need these men. Can you hear Jesus praying for you when you go through trial? Standing at the right hand of the Father, Father God, I need this girl, I need this lady, I need this boy, I need this man. And can you hear him interceding for you as you go through your struggles? Because he does. We know that from the scriptures. 
And when the time was right, the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to the disciples, got into their boat, and he calmed their storm. When the time was right, don't give up. Don't stop your struggle. Hang in. I, um, I grew up in Brisbane, uh, in the suburb of Inala. Is there anyone here this morning who knows Brisbane well enough to know Inala? Okay. You will know the reputation that Inala has. One of the toughest, one of the toughest suburbs in all of Brisbane. And um, having said that, what a great time to grow up, you know, during the 70s and 80s. I loved my life. It was fantastic. Uh, but Inala was a tough joint to grow up in. And uh, I can remember on one occasion, my, my mate Glenn Berghoffer and I used to ride our bikes, well, we would often ride our bikes to school and then ride them home again. And I can remember one night we'd ridden our bikes to school and uh, we stopped off at a mate's place. And uh, then we rode home later that night when it was dark. And I pulled in at the local skating rink, the roller skating rink. My sister was working there at the time. And I just pulled in to see if she was working. And um, across the road from the park came a gang of youths. And they laid into me. They started thumping into me. And they worked me over really, really well. And um, I had blood streaming from my ear, blood streaming from my nose. And um, I did notice, I'll tell you how, I'll tell you how tough Inala is. I noticed within that gang of youths uh, that three of them were on my cricket team. They were my mates. <laughs> they didn't hit me real hard, though. Um, no, I knew I was a bad cricketer, but I didn't think I was that bad that I deserved the flogging. But <laughs> three of those guys were on my cricket team. Now, the whole thing was over in just a couple of moments. You know, it was bang, 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 bang. I was on the floor and they ran. Well, the first thing on my mind when I, when I got up was, how's my mate Glenn? And I looked over to where my mate Glenn should have been, but I saw him disappearing down the road on his push bike. He bolted. He abandoned me. He left me. He's gone. Len Berghoffer, if you're listening, 40 years down the track, I haven't forgotten this. He just abandoned me. Now, I won't blame him for that because if I was, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, I would have abandoned him too. Uh, I wasn't going to stand around and be beaten up. Uh, but he abandoned me. You know, you might be here this morning and you may be going through a difficult time and you may feel that God has abandoned you. But can I say this morning, don't trust your feelings. Our feelings are the most reliable things. They deceive us so often. Don't trust your feelings. Trust God. Trust the promises that God has made to never leave us and never forsake us. Let's just have a quick look. This will be a really quick journey uh, through some scriptures. To Abraham, God said this. This is a promise that God has made to his people time and time and time and time again. To Abraham, right back in the book of Genesis, he says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will not leave you. That was to Abraham. To the Israelites, now this was uh, Moses uh, directing the Israelites, giving them God's instructions. To the Israelites, he says, Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, to Joshua, he said, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again to Joseph, 
uh, sorry, to Joshua. Uh, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you. Are you getting the point? God will never leave us or abandon us. He's promised us over and over again to people in need. In Isaiah 41, he says, The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. To his people, he says in Psalm 37, 28, For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. To believers, he says in Hebrews chapter 13, Keep your eyes from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you and on and on and on these promises go. You know, when God says something once, you can go to the bank with that. When he says it over and over and over again, he means it. If you're going through a difficult time this morning, you can be certain that when the time is right, God will come. For the disciples, it was the fourth watch of the night, nine hours into their struggle. You may have been struggling in your life with something for a week, for a month, for a year, for three years. But be assured, God will come when the time is right, not when we want him to. We would love that. But that's not how God operates. He's all wise. And he will come when the time is right. But until that time, you are always in his vision and under his care. He loves you. He cares for you. And he wants the best for you. You know, the Bible says, even concerning Jesus, that God sent his son when the time had fully come. Even Jesus coming into the world. Yeah, thank you, guys. You can come back up. God sent his one and only son into the world when the time was perfect. He'll come when it's right. Until then, hang in and trust not your feelings. Trust what God has said. He will never leave you, never forsake you. You're the apple of his eye. He loves you more than you will ever know. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that you are a faithful God, more faithful than we will ever be in our lifetime. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you, Father, for each person here. And life is not always rosy. You've never promised us a rosy life. You've promised, you've told us that uh, uh, in this world we will face strife. And uh, there are some here this morning, I'm sure, who are facing strife. And I would pray, Father, that they will leave here this morning with renewed confidence and renewed trust in the promises of God. Father God, thank you that you've always promised to be with us. You've promised that you will never leave us, never forsake us, never give up on us. And Father, may that assurance be ours, each one, this morning, for we pray it in Jesus' name.